Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. people's roles as productive contributors, people's ability to support themselves and their families is vital to the formation of families and the rationale for their formation in the first place. It's vital to their stability. And then it's vital for that replicability, for being able to raise kids in an environment where they then reach adulthood prepared to to carry these things forward. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is someone I've wanted to talk to on the show for a long time. It is Oren Cass, who's the executive director of the new group, The American Compass. Uh, Cass is a, an important figure in Republican domestic policymaking. He was director of domestic policy for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in 2012. Uh, he's been at the Manhattan Institute for a long time. He's one of these folks whose ideas on this are very, very influential on the right. Um, but starting in 2018, when he published a book called The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America, and then more recently when he founded American Compass, he has begun leading a kind of insurgency on the right to create what he calls, uh, in some contexts, a post-Trump economics, but, but in particular to sort of get rid of the right's focus on free markets and focus on, in particular, tax policy and tax cuts, and to try to tie economic policy to a vision of the country and a vision of families and what is good for them that he thinks is often missed. And, and I think it's a very interesting project. A lot of things that he thinks that, that I don't agree with, but he's somebody who I think is important in the debate. And I think understanding his perspective is really important for understanding at least where one part of the Republican Party is going to try to go next. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Oren Cass. Oren Cass, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation because I've been really interested in what you've been doing um, for a long time, but particularly in these last couple of months and years. And uh, it, it, I'm curious how it's feeling to you, right? You've gone from being, you know, kind of at the center of the Republican Party, your Mitt Romney's policy director in the 2012 campaign, to being a kind of factional leader in an effort to redefine what conservatism is going to become. And sort of before we get into the ideas, how is that? How is that project feeling? Like, how has that been for you? Well, it's been fascinating, um, and you know, you always sort of 
observe yourself in a meta sense as as you're drifting through whatever work you're doing. And and so as I look back, you know, I was I was Governor Romney's domestic policy director in 2012, and li- literally started doing that while I was still in law school. And so very much sort of still forming my own views, and have traveled since then. But maybe a somewhat circuitous path, but but to a place I'm I'm very excited about where it feels to me as I was forming views and, and learning things that some things that were taken for granted just didn't make any sense and, and had carried forward for so long, uh, almost just sort of by default or by inertia. And so I, uh, it felt like there was a need for a new institution. I never thought I'd start one, but it, it became a, if not me, who, if, if not now, when. And, and I think it's a really exciting opportunity to let people put out what they really think is right. So, I think a good place to go with that is a major theme in your book, and I take your book as some of the like the one of the founding documents in your project here, is that there's a disconnect between economic numbers and actual prosperity. And not just prosperity, but like the good life, the good society. So let me ask the question this way. What are the indicators of social well-being and success that we should be paying less attention to? And which ones should we be paying more attention to or building? Well, I think the one we should be paying less attention to is aggregate GDP for both parts of that, the aggregate and the GDP. I think we do a lot of analysis at the aggregate level, and especially in a country as large and diverse as ours, to say that growth was X percent last year really tells you very little about how any given group of people in in any given place is faring. And so I think particularly when those who are, are doing well are, are frankly doing so well in, in the modern economy, being able to focus in and ask how are people who are not doing so well doing is vitally important. And then the second piece of that is GDP, which is, of course, technically a measure of output, but we tend to analyze it after we've, we've redistributed and moved money around and try to understand it as a measure of consumption. And I think consumption is is great. I'm, I'm not an, an anti-growth, anti-materialism guy at all. Uh, but I think at the margin, increases in consumption when it's the sort of size of your television probably aren't all that correlated to individuals' well-being or happiness, the health or strength of their families, their communities, and especially their ability to carry forward healthy families and communities through their children to the next generation. And and I guess that foreshadows the, the question of what I think we should pay more attention to, which is those things. Are people able to and are they forming stable families? Are they able to achieve self-sufficiency, provide for themselves, contribute to their communities? And then do we have a sustainable process where that is is reproducing into the next generation so that the folks who are kids today or leaving high school today are are in a position to do that as well? But But be very specific for me. If you were to say, these are the five indicators we should watch, are you saying it should be the divorce rate, national manufacturing output, median wage? Like, what are, what are we, what, what is your basket of indicators um, that, that you think is most important? Sure. So I think one economic one that's really important is the savings rate. I, and, and again, not the aggregate savings rate. I would, I would want to know the savings rate for the typical household and specifically the typical household with children living in the household. If you see a savings rate, that both tells you a, high, a positive and, and higher one, that tells you both that 
uh, attitudinally, people are saving and investing and planning toward a future and economically that they are not reliant on transfer payments and, and trying to just pay that month's bills. They actually have reached a place where they are able to be net productive contributors. So th- that's an economic measure that I think is very important. Obviously, related to that is is a question like the median wage. And so I think that's an important one to look at. I think family status is very important. Divorce rate, I think, is probably not the right way to look at it, especially today where more so the issue is is families not forming in the first place, either people who have kids not getting married or people not having kids at all. And so both the marriage rate and the fertility rate, uh, I think, are, are really important to look at. And, and then the combination of those, in a sense, which would tell you the share of folks who are essentially in stable relationships and the share of kids who are being raised in those kinds of households. And then the last thing I would I would look at and, and think is really important, and, and this goes back to the aggregate point, is looking at the health of local economies and communities. There's a, a fascinating chart that I, I ended up dropping in most of the presentations I give, which comes from um, an analysis the New York Times did, where they just looked county by county at the share of personal income that came from transfer payments. So let's look at all the incoming cash that households are reporting and how much of that is earned income versus income coming from some sort of government program, whether that's cash or in kind. And they compare the 70s, where essentially across all counties, you were at you know 10 to 20% personal income from transfers to now fast forward to the mid-2010s, uh, and you see kind of the map turns red. You, you get up to 30, 40% in most places and up above 50% in, in some. And that transition, totally aside from how you feel about government spending or redistribution and so forth, just tells you about a economy that is not working correctly, that for, for many, if not most parts of the country, cannot actually produce things that the rest of the country or world wants to exchange for what they want from those other places. They, they are instead literally exporting need. They are trading enrollment of people in their communities on these programs for the resources they want from elsewhere. And getting out of that model, I think, is vital to having, a frankly, a, a viable nation for the long run. I want to draw something out here, and you can tell me if, I'm, if you think I'm misreading it. My read of a lot of conservative thinking on these issues for a long time has been that some of these issues of, say, family formation are understood to be cultural, and the economy is understood to be downstream of them, right? That if people are doing the right thing, they're joining their church, they're getting married, then they're going to be fine in the economy. And to the extent they're not fine, it's because they are failing to form these stable families. They have become secular, cosmopolitan, whatever, libertine, whatever it might be. And you're reversing this argument, that you're saying that many of these questions of the way we live our lives that have often been understood as cultural questions are downstream of how the economy is working and who it's working for and whether or not men are bringing home um, wages that make them marriageable and whether or not childcare is affordable and so on and so forth. And so like, you actually have to manage the economy to get the family and cultural dynamics you want. You can't simply blame economic outcomes on people making cultural and familial decisions you don't like. So I think that's exactly right as to the first part of it, that I, I, I reject this model that says the economic outcomes are, are merely downstream of the culture. 
I, I don't think it's right to think of it as a stream one way or the other. I think it's better to see it as just a, a giant mess of factors and to acknowledge in a sense that that everything influences everything. Of, of course, culture influences economic outcomes and, and that influences family formation. And certainly it is easier to make it economically if, if you're able to form a stable family. Uh, it also influences things like what kinds of fields elites go into. Do, do, do business school graduates go into finance and, and cut up and merge and reassemble companies? Or do they go actually do productive things in the real economy? And so I think that's absolutely important to consider. But then, as you said, it's also important to recognize that the economic conditions have huge influences as well. They they shape the culture and, and then they shape the outcomes for families. And so in a sense, I think the the right way to think about it is, as, as economists like to say, at the margin, that if if we have problems, if we have what I think across the political spectrum, people generally agree are real challenges in some of these areas, um, then instead of fighting about which way this, the stream flows, I think it would be more constructive to say, well, well, first of all, what's changed, right? I mean, we're all sort of living in the same culture, and yet somehow it's the people facing the, the terrible economic outcomes who have run into these kinds of dysfunctions, or whether you want to say they've they've fallen prey to them or or given in to them. Again, a little bit goes back to which way the stream runs, but what's changed for them is is the economics. And if we want to ask what levers we have to pull, and especially where policymakers can make a difference, making the economy work better for the typical American seems to me a pretty obvious place to start. I, I do want to spend a moment on the the stream and, and maybe just the first part of it here, because I think this is actually an underplayed change in our policy conversation over the past decade or two decades. So when I came to Washington in 2005, there were still a lot of arguments about culture and economics and particularly the way they related to the black community. And there was still this live argument about the between the people who said there's like a, a culture of pathology in in the black community and like that's why there is family breakdown and other things. And then what the 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 view that was associated with like William Julius Wilson which said that there had been a fleeing of manufacturing plants, good jobs, et cetera, out of um, the places where Black people lived, that this sort of economic devastation had led to it being much harder for people to form stable families and, and so on. And something that really seems to have changed over the, the next decade is that the same things that we had seen in many Black communities, we saw in white communities. Um, as jobs left, as wealth concentrated in a couple urban centers, as manufacturing jobs uh, died out in many parts of America, we saw sharply rising rates of divorce. We saw sharply rising rates of drug addiction. We saw sharply rising rates of all these things that had been for a long time put on um, black community as a like a like a cultural problem, a set of bad decisions and insufficient male role models and so on. And then when you it turned out you exposed white people to the same economic conditions, they began to follow along many of the same trends. And I think we've been more compassionate uh, as a like Washington when that began happening to the white community. I think that like say the difference between how crack and opioids were treated is really telling in this. But nevertheless, it, it seems to me to have to some degree settled 
a very important argument in, in American life. And I don't mean to say it only goes one way. Obviously, people make individual decisions about how to lead their lives. But I do think it has helped show that like there is a really big effect of local economic opportunity on the way people are going to live their lives after that. I definitely think you're right about the the increased focus over time on on the economic opportunity question. You know, it's interesting also to think about, I guess, at least from my perspective, I would say most of the change actually happened post-2012. Now, one thing that changed a lot, I think, is, is the Great Recession, obviously, and the incredibly slow recovery from it, and just what that meant for the macro environment in the country for a long time. I think the other thing that has sort of happened quite strikingly in in the kind of post Romney pre Trump window is you you start to you start to see actual knowledge emerging and in particular I always point to both David Otter's work on the China shock and and Case and Deaton on deaths of despair and you got this kind of academic research for the first time confirming what I think a lot of people might have perceived out in the country, but which the, a little bit to your point, within the Beltway, people would have said, well, that's, you know, you're either overreacting or you're, we're just sort of oblivious to it. And, and it turned out, you know, no, actually, sudden shocks to labor markets do kind of deeply damage communities in ways they don't recover from. Uh, and, and the impacts of that over the long run, regardless of what the rising consumption per capita data tells you, are are incredibly severe. And so I think that that's also something that changed a lot of the perspective. And it, it, it is interesting how it fits in the timeline in the long run. But but it strikes me as something that was not part of a right of center conversation in 2011, 2012 during that election cycle, but then very much was by the time you get to the next election cycle. And, and certainly Trump is a piece of that, but but even independent of Trump, I think that shift was underway. So this feeds into what is your core argument in, in the book, and I think to some degree in American Compass, which you call the, the working hypothesis. And, and I almost want to call it like the working goal, where you say that a labor market in which workers can support strong families and communities is the central determinant of long-term prosperity and should be the central focus of public policy. And I want to talk about that and what that means, but but I think to understand it, I want to distinguish it from what you are trying to supplant. So if that is the Orrin Cass goal or hypothesis, what do you think the dominant goal or hypothesis in the Republican and Democratic parties traditionally has been? The way I describe it as gro- is, is growth plus redistribution. The idea that we're going to get aggregate GDP up and that creates a bigger pie and once we have the bigger pie, we might fight about how exactly to cut it up. But at the end of the day, everybody can have more pie. Uh, and so I, I tongue-in-cheek call this economic piety. But I, I think it's the model that predominated roughly from certainly sort of the 80s through to uh, to the last few years and arguably still predominates for, for most folks in Washington. And you're saying this is true for both parties? Yes, and so is the way you see this, the two parties did not differ substantially on how to directly manage the economy. They both kind of had the view that you like more or less let a rip. And then they just differed on what do you do to redistribute the gains? No, I, well, I think you see the fights in the past over both sides of the equation. So I think the two parties had different views of how you get the most growth. And then they had different views of, of how much redistribution you do. 
and also how much those two things affect each other. But I think at the end of the day, there was widespread agreement that as long as your combination of factors led to the growing pie for everybody, uh, you could be confident that you were succeeding. And how is your view different? Well, I, I think pie is nice, but to, to overstretch the metaphor, uh, I think it matters who's baking the pie. That a lot of what contributes to the, the well-being uh, and life satisfaction and, and family formation strength and community strength uh, comes down to the production side of the equation, that, that everybody is a consumer, but everybody is also a producer. You know, it's, it's not the classic sort of special interest battle between these two groups. It's, it's two parts of everybody. And that that production side, am I, do I have a role? Do I do something that is valued by others and creates something of value and, and contributes to the well-being of others? that that is vital to all of these these things that we care about, much more, I think, at the end of the day than the consumption side. And so in, in an ideal world, you get both. You, you grow the economy in a way that includes and involves everybody as a producer, and that ensures they are all becoming more productive over time. And then everybody gets more pie and can feel like they helped bake it. But I think that the way that we pursued the growth from both parties either just disregarded the production side of the equation and so kind of let it atrophy or or in a, in a lot of cases actively undermined it. And that in some cases there are trade-offs. And whereas standard economic analysis says consumer welfare is what matters. I mean, the, the funny thing is standard economic analysis says work is is bad. The goal is to get as much as you can while doing as little work as possible. And so the way we evaluate policy has been to say, how much stuff can we produce to consume? Uh, and we either don't care or, or even devalue the work done to produce it. And I think that led us pretty far astray. This idea of production and the role placed in people's lives is, is, a, is super important here. And so I want to quote something you write, which is that most of the activities and achievements that give life purpose and meaning are, whether in the economic sphere or not, fundamentally acts of production. It seems to me that you're making an argument here, which is that it is not simply that focusing on the production side of the equation will grow GDP the most, but that the best way to help people live dignified lives is to make sure they feel like productive members of the economy, that they are baking the pie. Is that is that right? Like, tell me about the role production is playing here beyond simply as an input to aggregate GDP. Yeah, that that's exactly right. I, and I would go so far even to say, you know, we could have a very interesting debate about whether a kind of more production attentive model would be the best for growth in the long run. I think it probably would. But even if it wouldn't, it could still ultimately be the best for the quality of the society in the long run. And so I think what's really important is to look, you know, I, I look at it through these kind of four dimensions. First, from the perspective of individuals, what's most important? And there, as you, you quoted and then kind of described, production, I think, is, is what's most important. I think when we, when we think about our own lives and what's most important to them, it is things that we have actually accomplished and done and are valued by others, not the things we've bought. The data is actually quite good that employment is vitally important to people's feeling of self-worth and self-esteem, their mental health, their life satisfaction. And so just from that kind of very individualist perspective, I think 
having people engaged as productive contributors is vital. I think that being said, I would worry less about it if the hyper-consumerist model still gave you a flourishing society. But, but the reality is that it doesn't. That when you then skip forward to family, you see that, that sort of people's roles as productive contributors, people's ability to support themselves and their families is vital to the formation of families and the rationale for their formation in the first place. It's vital to their, their stability. I mean, unemployment for men is an extraordinarily strong predictor of divorce. And then it's vital for that replicability, for being able to raise kids in an environment where they then reach adulthood prepared to, to carry these things forward. It's incredibly important to communities. And this is where that the point I was making earlier about the kind of county-by-county county personal income is so important. If you drive around a kind of depressed part of the country, the one of these kind of quintessential things you'll see is you'll see the, the dilapidated shopping plaza and then you'll see the sparkling occupational therapy office in the middle of it. And, and at first you'll say, like, like, what on earth is this? Is this an unknown, you know, hotbed of acupuncture? But it's not. It is technically the community's exporter. It is exporting to the rest of the country care of the people in the community on disability. And so when we talk generally about eds and meds as these kind of incredibly resilient productive and flourishing sectors of the economy, we have to recognize that actually what they are, the, the colleges and the hospitals, those are the two segments of our economy that we've said come with a blank check from the federal government. You, you enroll people in your services, we, the nation, will send in the money. And having an economy built around that is just not healthy for communities, I think, in the long run. And then finally, I think it's really important to think about it at, at the national level. And this is where we, we get back, in my view anyway, to the point that this probably is best for growth in the long run, that just having a high GDP isn't necessarily enough in the long run, and it's not necessarily sustainable, that, that what you make and the trajectory you're on is incredibly important. And if you let all the supply chains go away, uh, if you let large parts of the country kind of fall into disrepair, if you build an educational system that, that essentially writes off the majority of people who still don't earn even a community college degree, um, none of those things are actually healthy for your productive or innovative potential in the long run. And so in on, on that front too, kind of celebrating how much we consumed in, in Q3 is just not the right measure of whether the economy is on the right track. Whether or not we are building our long-run productive capacity is, is what we should be concerned about. Uh, and, and again, not what we have been concerned about. How do you define and value production and who is a producer in this model? So I think that's a, a really interesting question. And, and it's interesting from at least two perspectives, I think. One is kind of how do we define value? So if I'm a private equity partner who made, you know, $7 million last year, regardless of whether my fund did well or not, well, doesn't that mean I was super productive? And the answer is no, not necessarily. And it's also really important when you get out of the market altogether and ask about non-market actors like caregivers. And so I think from my perspective, the, the two kind of non-negotiable elements that we should have at, at the core of this way of thinking are one, productive meaning created something of value for others. That how productive you are is not measured by the size of your paycheck. It is measured by 
whether or not you can feel at the end of the day like other people counted on you, needed you, relied on you, benefited from what you were doing, and that you therefore have an important role to play in the community. And then second, th- there is a market-based component of it, which is that you or, and, and I always say the, the analysis needs to be done at the household level, not the individual level, that your household is a net contributor. And so caregiving absolutely is, is a way to find that productive purpose. But for things to be working well, the caregiving also needs to be operating in a context where the household itself has essentially achieved self-sufficiency and is able to interact with other households in the marketplace and with other businesses and get the things that it needs in returns for the, the things that it's doing for others. The point you make about private equity speaks to something bigger, which is that you believe and I believe that the market often misleads us as to what is actually producing value. And that I think creates real issues, particularly when you're building so much of a theory around work and the like, dignifying underpinnings of, of productivity. I mean, you mentioned here caregiving. Um, so many people who are stay-at-home parents, right? They, they Their contribution doesn't show up in a direct way in GDP. They don't get paid for it. Um, there are all kinds of things we really value, like teachers and, and, and nurses who don't get paid nearly as well as investment bankers and, and management consultants. And recognizing that the market can mislead us so profoundly, but that we do very much take status as a reflection of market rewards, right? I mean, the reason we look at some professions as so powerful and socially high up and others is not tends to be that some of those make a lot of money. Doesn't that create a problem for work being so central to your analysis? Um, doesn't it create some demand that we need to come up with other measures of meaningfulness or fulfillment? Maybe even arguing that like we should be trying to get away from everybody being measured by their work and how the market compensates that work. Or maybe we need to really reconstruct how the market compensates that work. But but that 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 somewhat broken connection between what the market seems to value and the work that I think a lot of us in these conversations believe we value or say we value seems like a real a real issue at the center of this. It definitely is. I, I would suggest we kind of cabin off the caregiver question and, and we can come back to it and, and discuss it in, in depth. The, the funny thing about the caregiver issue is that as a caregiver, you're doing something incredibly valuable and important, but your household is both the producer and consumer of it. And so it's incredibly valuable. And yet you internal to your own household essentially also get the benefit from it. And and so I think there's a different way we need to think about whether we're concerned about the way that's valued or whether we could just say it should be something that is is given much greater social status and celebrated, but not a place where there's necessarily actually kind of an economic problem. Within the market, I, I think, as you said, we obviously have a disconnect between what is in people's paychecks at the end of the day and, you know, certainly <laughs> how much effort they are putting in, but also how much benefit society is getting from what they do. And not just society, frankly, how much benefit the people whom they, they, they are exchanging with are getting for what they do. And I think that that is a big problem that, that we need to address and a, a way in which we should be striving to build a more just economy 
Um, but I don't know that it necessarily threatens the kind of underlying principle of caring about kind of productive contribution for a, a few reasons. One is, you know, I think there actually are a lot of less paid professions or, or just jobs that that do have status. I mean, I think teachers and nurses are good examples of of jobs that are are very well respected in the society. Until recently, I would have put police officer in that category as well. And independent of of the controversy going on in that area, I would say it's a huge loss if that as a kind of major working class profession and opportunity to serve your community honorably loses that status. And of course, certainly there's the military, which I think continues to kind of receive fairly high status, certainly in many segments of the society. And, and so it's not that we, we don't know how to or, or are somehow incapable of, of according respect and, and social status. It's that we haven't realized it's something that we actually need to care about. And just to kind of put one more example on that, it's, it's funny, this happened just after the book came out. And I was, I was so, <laughs> so one of those moments where we're like, well, oh, but this would have been in the book, darn it. I don't know if you remember, there was this controversy where someone tried to, I think they were calling it job shaming. Um, the guy who used to be an actor on the Cosby show and, and he was bagging groceries at Trader Joe's and, and some tabloid, you know, got some pictures of it and were trying to, to laugh at this guy who used to be a successful actor and, and was now bagging groceries. And the outpouring of, of outrage over this was really overwhelming. I mean, you had the people on, you know, on social media. He was immediately invited on on Good Morning America, one of these shows, and and did a really nice job kind of articulating this point that no, he he was doing a job that was useful to other people and allowed him to provide for his family. And of course that should be honored. And and whenever one actually had to focus on it and think about it, this was we have plenty of culture war issues where we disagree more the more we focus on it. This was not one of them. When people realized this was actually an issue, there was universal agreement. It's just not something that I think we have recognized socially and culturally as an issue or a problem that is is at the core of a lot of what's wrong in our society and and does deserve to be talked about differently. I, I'm not 100% sure if we disagree or agree on this. So I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to nudge it one more time because I remember that controversy and I would file that under hypocrisy being the tribute that vice plays to virtue. People didn't like what it said when our the way our culture and economy actually treat a lot of service workers was made too explicit. But that didn't change the fact that if you are somebody who bags groceries for a living, which I think we're seeing in COVID is one of the things that actually we need to keep the economy running and households afloat um, in a way we don't need a lot of other things. I don't think that's great for you typically on the dating market. I don't think kids graduating out of Ivy League colleges are going into that and, and putting bagging groceries aside. Even the teachers and nurses example, I think is a really important one here. There's a reason, and I think you see this as a, as a question of status, that Ivy League colleges and selective colleges end up being such feeders to Wall Street, to management consulting, to Silicon Valley. And it's because kids who want status know that it's in these hyper high compensated professions. One reason Teach for America has been so successful, at least to the extent it has been, was that they were able to create an 
an, an alternative pathway where they attached status through selectivity to teaching. And they couldn't do it for everybody forever. But like for that moment, like if you said, I got selected for teaching, they always used to say, talk about how selective they were, right? Like how hard it was to get into Teach for America. And like, if you got into Teach for America, like that was something you could brag about because people knew most people couldn't. But the the simplest way we tend to do that is money. And so may, maybe I'll ask it this way, that within your framework, how do we compensate these jobs better? I think that if being a teacher, let me say it straightforwardly, I think that if being a teacher could pay at the top end $220,000 a year, and around that, it had a lot more social status because like, you know, marrying a teacher would be a really good financial decision for a lot of people and, and so on and so forth, that a lot of kids graduating out of Ivy Leagues, you know, would want to be teachers, that we would be like overrun with people who want to be teachers. I think it's a job where entrance into it is suppressed from what it might otherwise be because as much as people like it and many want to do it, they just don't feel like it's high status enough. They can't pay back their student loans well enough on it. Um, they they don't see the future they want to. So how do we correct that if we're going to give that attention? Oh, there there was a lot there. I'm going to see how much I apologize of it I can, for that. Yes. I can make through. But no, <laughs> no, it was it was fantastic. We could spend the rest of the time just just iterating on this question. I want to put a pin in. in one thing to start, I think we agree on on the bagging groceries point, which is that clearly it does not have status in society. And people were kind of just doing this thing to feel good about themselves yes. when they talked about it. That was a signaling moment. Right. The, the, the point that I do think is important to recognize there, though, is that everybody agreed on what signal they should try to send. Yes. In other words, there, there are plenty of culture war fights we have where something gets thrust in and the way you signal is by kind of staking out the most opposed positions possible. There, there was no one who thought, no, I actually, I think in a meta sense, the thing I should say about the society we want is one where we do laugh at people bagging groceries. So it's it's this kind of funny situation where although no one necessarily lives it or it is in our culture, it is aspirationally something everyone thinks it would be a better thing to have. And so that at least gives me hope relative to a lot of the other things that are wrong in our culture is, is sort of what I would say about that. The point about kind of the compensation and and sort of what is perceived as a high-status career, I think, again, I, I agree with most of what you said with the caveat that it had the phrase Ivy League in it an awful lot of times. And it also had the dollar amount $220,000. And for most of the country and most of the people who live in the country, those aren't relevant reference points. And in most conversations at most cookouts this summer, an Ivy League degree or working in investment banking may in some sort of abstract sense be impressive, but it's, it actually has very little status value. It is something that is <laughs> of no interest to discuss and if anything, is kind of negatively associated with an awful lot of things. So, I, I want to push on this just one little bit to, to make clear what I'm saying, because maybe you disagree with it, but maybe you don't. What I'm getting at there is not that we like Ivy League. I'm not an Ivy League graduate myself, um, uh, and I have a certain amount of resentment towards them. <laughs> um, what I'm getting at there is that who holds status in society is important, and that the way our society has in practice structured itself is its status often waterfalls down from the professions that 
attract the most powerful and uh, like and selective cohorts and also to pay them the most money and that's partially because they then have money to spend on like political power it's partially because they end up having power in the culture they get heard you know, like all the like they they get like op-eds published all of this but but I'm I, I think one of the things I'm asking here is like I think part of the problem in the economy is that we've misallocated status. And I think that a like a, a cold-eyed view of that is that it comes from misalloc like it waterfalls down. Um so that's why I'm bringing that up there. Because like I think that you need to make these it is in making them more attractive to everybody that you would make them like better for everybody. It's hard to do, I think, if you're just like if you don't want to pay teachers more, I think it's gonna be hard to make it a higher status profession. I guess maybe in an idealistic sense, it it seems attractive to say we're going to kind of do this equalization of status. I I may just have a more fatalistic view that, of course, in in every society in human history, and going forward, I expect in in every human society, you will have status and you will have high status professions and and places of authority, which by definition are high status because they are selective and there, there aren't a lot of people in them. So the the idea that we would somehow kind of convert the kind of mass of, of jobs into high status jobs, that's where I'm catching is that that doesn't, that doesn't seem me as, strike me as attainable, but it also doesn't seem to be as me to be necessary because, and, and I have to now choose get your op-eds published as replacing Ivy League mentions as as what jumps out as the most dissonant element of, of our conversation because that's that's not a relevant marker of status for in the sense I am talking about what we want from productivity. That if what we want is a society where Anybody, wherever they live, whatever their aptitudes, whatever their level of educational attainment, can find work in which they are valued and that is a productive contribution so that they can feel they are a productive contributor and in turn can allow them to form a family that can support itself and raise kids ready to to move ahead in the same way, then we've succeeded. Whether or not they get their op-eds published. I mean, we could have a broader discussion about kind of democratic power and how we want that allocated in society. But it's absolutely the case that that somebody who has a kind of stable job paying, you know, forty or fifty thousand dollars a year is a perfectly attractive candidate on the marriage market and can certainly kind of build a wonderful life for themselves and their family. And so at, particularly starting from where we are now, I think those are the things we should be talking about and aspiring to and and setting as policy goals, not kind of seeing how well we can enlist the entire country in the in the status competition that that I really think is is much more kind of an Ivy League and beltway phenomenon than it is an element of of what matters to most people in their lives. So I think this is, uh, I want to trace this because I think this is actually getting to a, a useful disagreement because I read a lot of your framing rhetoric. I'm like, yeah, exactly. And, and then sometimes I'll get to your policy prescriptions and we're going to go to policy prescriptions in a couple minutes here and get very specific. Um, and I'll think, wait, that's it? And one reason I think maybe we have this gap here is that I think some of what you're saying is a little bit severed from a power analysis. I think that 
one of the questions is worth asking is if we have ended up in as dire straits as we have, and I, I worry that I've somehow backed you into sounding a little bit more complacent than, than, than you do, but you're, you're pretty, you've been pretty hair on fire about the state of the economy, the state of American families and American communities. Like You're somebody who believes that at a very profound level, the party that you have been a central player in and the Democratic Party have failed. They have failed again and again. They have failed from different directions. They have failed. And like we need to like build new things in the wreckage. And part of what I would say is that one reason to the extent they failed, that they failed, is that the way our society allocated power ended up giving it to the wrong people. And obviously, there's no profession where most people are getting op-eds published except for op-ed writers, right? Like that's the only profession where a large percentage of the of the members get um, op-eds published. But the, the reason I bring things like that in a bit is that who is getting listened to matters. I mean, for years, Wall Street bankers have been very loud in the public policy conversation and public policy reflects their volume. Steve Ratner, who I like much of his analysis, um, but like why exactly does he have a New York Times column? Like, he's a like a banker, like a rich guy, um, and he's like done really well in markets, and he's like done some also public policy work. But that revolving door between Wall Street and politics, where Wall Street people had a lot of power to set policy and set policy that ended up in many cases being quite good for Wall Street, like that's a reflection of power. Um, I think it's one reason why it's not. It's when Elizabeth Warren was promising that like she would have a public school teacher as her secretary of education. You know, that was on some level representation and symbolism, but on another level wasn't. Like I, I actually think it matters which professions have status and are represented in the ranks of policymakers or listened to in the national conversation. It will not be every profession. And I take your point that like the what I'm offering here cannot be um like totally generalized, right? We're not not gonna equalize status all across the, the, the system. But I think power matters. And I think that um, to understand why things have gotten bad for many people, I think it requires recognizing that they and the people they know and the people in their communities have not had a voice and that some particular groups, you know, and I would put here like tech, Wall Street, tech banking and, and management consulting as, as leading ones have had a really outsized voice and their concerns have been taken care of, whereas like the concerns of, you know, people in manufacturing often haven't been. So I, I certainly agree with that, and I, I think it would also be a very fair criticism of me and my work to say I kind of ignore power. That is not where I focus my attention, in part because I think I take for granted that a society is going to have an elite that exercises the power. And so from my perspective, the two kind of most interesting and important levers to pull are one... What is the kind of stream of thinking in which they all swim? That is, you know, America had a very narrow elite composed mainly of folks from comparable groups, I would say, a hundred years ago. And yet the conception of the nation, of obligations between members and, and segments of society within that nation, of what the goals were, of what the appropriate role of government in, in pursuing those goals was, all of those things were thought about differently. And, and so I'm kind of a big ideas matter guy. And I think we can trace the way people adopted different ideas 
that led them to then the policies we've been pursuing recently. I'm also a most people act in good faith guy. I, I think the Democrats and Republicans obviously are self-interested, uh, but generally wholeheartedly believed that economic piety story. And so one thing I, I think is that if we actually challenge those ideas and introduce better ideas and and have everybody swimming in in a current that flows in a different direction, I think that's that is a a desirable direction to go with trying to to pursue change. And then the second lever I think that's really important is coalition related. That at the end of the day, whoever is exercising power, I think is still subject to the forces of of the coalitions that that they're built on. Um, I think in a lot of ways our our democracy still works pretty well in in that respect. And I think part of the way we got in the trouble we we got into is that the way that the coalitions were constructed advanced certain interests and 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 focused on certain interests of certain groups and not on others. And and so I think the the concept of realignment is very powerful and recognizing that there's probably a a fairly large working majority that could collectively exercise power particularly in a context where different ideas were ascendant i think those are are the most promising avenues to to try to move things forward as as opposed to what i personally find to be the more kind of navel gazing theorizing about where power resides in the society this episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. I'd like to do two things in the time we have left together here, which is one, I want to do a bit of a policy lightning round. I want to ask you about a couple different policy areas and, and, and here in a specific way what you think should be done on them, what ideas you think are out there that are good, just where where you would like to see them go. And then I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about the sort of the way the Republican Party is thinking about its future and, and the role you're playing in that. But let, let's start with the policy lightning round. And let me start with childcare. What do you think we should do on childcare? 
I'm largely opposed to uh, any public funding for child care because I think it privileges having someone else take care of a household's children over over having the household take care of its children. Uh, and this this gets back to that that caregiving discussion that we cabined earlier. Uh, but I would like to see any assistance that we provide to families go to them independent of who is taking care of the children. If you're trying to make it easier for family formation to happen and be stable, though, it seems like you have to do something around the affordability of either childcare or staying at home with children. So what is your what what would your proposal be for, you know, there are a lot of ideas out there, and I know you've talked about some of them to say, you know, you have a credit that goes to people that can be used for childcare or used, um, you know, pocketed by the family if if somebody is staying home caring for the children. Like what what is your what would you do here? Well, so as as between those options you, you just mentioned, I would like to see a credit go to the family based on the composition of the family and, and the children if, if we think they need resources to support the raising of the children. I think bigger picture, I would like to see us move toward an economy in which a single earner could actually earn enough to support a household so that particularly when children are young, both parents don't need to be working out of the household, which, which by the way, reflects the, the stated preferences of parents and non-parents of both genders for how they would like to see um, families proceed. And, and, and I think one thing that's really important to highlight about the economic challenges that families face is that with some very limited exceptions, generally speaking, even a, a quite poor paying job that a second earner might go into the economy to take is still going to pay more in absolute terms than the cost of the child care while that second earner is working. So when you say that, you know, it the, the child care is too expensive, the economic position of that household at the end of the day would technically still be better than in the household where the parent isn't working. What what's actually least affordable right now is to is to stay home. And so the the child care focus in that respect I don't think solves in a sense the the kind of core problem that we're talking about. Now, one one criticism of everything I've just said of course is that I I am presuming a two-parent household. Um and and there are a whole bunch of other kind of implications we could we could pursue down that path. But I, I do think, generally speaking, that our society is going to be better off if we pursue a model where we want to have particularly very young children being cared for by a parent or or members of the extended family um, and, and not put into an institutional setting. I think one ungenerous way to hear that, though, is that your solution to the fact that for many families, they would like to have children and they can't afford it, or they would like to have more children and they don't feel they can afford it, um, or they have children and they're under tremendous economic stress is sort of like, well, we're, we need to fix the whole economy. So, 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 so give me the specifics here. Like if the ideas I just gave to you are not ones you love, but clearly you're thinking about family formation, what do you, th- what are the policies that you think would have a, a transformative effect there? I know a lot of people who, are not having kids or have not had the number of kids they would like to have because they simply can't afford it. So like what is what are, what are you offering them? Well, you know, to say that they can't afford it in a lot of cases I think comes down to trade-offs in, including with respect to to where you're living. And so I think one thing I would say is, you know, there are lots of people with relatively low incomes 
who do have kids. I mean, there, there, are, there are ways to make it work is one thing I think is important to keep in mind. I think in a lot of cases, you probably do need to be living closer to extended family, which I think is also a good thing and, and goes back to both the emphasis on the need to kind of have healthy communities and the need to have widespread economic opportunity so that people don't feel like they have to pick up and move. On the economic side, I think there are a bunch of kind of short-term things we could do to boost earnings. So I've for a long time been a proponent of wage subsidies to raise earnings at, at the low end of the market. Um, I think we should pursue a better system of organized labor, not just push more people into the unions we have, which are not working and which, among other things, workers don't especially like most of the time. Um, but I would like to see us create a system of organized labor that gave workers more power in their negotiations. Uh, I would like to see more constraints placed on firms to use domestic workers. And this gets into both the trade and immigration discussions. But with a lot of this, then I think the question goes to kind of, well, what timeline are we talking about? If the question is, what can you do to fix the problem tomorrow? Then a proposal that's just, well, let's let's send people money obviously looks the best. But I, I think we've been taking that approach for a very long time now, and it's a good way to make sure things keep getting worse. Uh, I, I think we should, and, and this goes back to the working hypothesis, we should set the goal that says this should be a labor market in which somebody can get a job that supports a family. And we should be putting pressure on policymakers, on the institutions in our society, and on the, the private sector to be moving in that direction. So tell me about your ideas on labor unions. Well, I think the, the starting thing to say about labor unions is that the idea of organized labor is a good one. It, it, it is not inherently liberal or conservative. If, if anything, it, it is in a sense more conservative because it contemplates a world where the private parties reach arrangements among themselves and particularly that you have kind of mediating institutions that do that work. So I, I think that's a laudatory model. And then I also think beyond the economic implications, just from a kind of cultural and a community perspective, the union, whatever it form it takes, is an incredibly powerful institution of civil society that we should want to see strengthened and thriving. So in, in my mind, the, the fight that we have gotten into where the, the left of center says, how do we get more people into 1930s style Wagner unions? And the right of center says, well, those unions stink. So how do we make sure they die, is just incredibly counterproductive. And it is important to note that the rest of the world does not do unions this way. I mean, Europe, by the way, is, is right to work. The, the, the right to work debate seems odd there because the idea that you would have a vote in your factory and if 50% plus one vote yes, then everyone becomes a union member, would be nonsensical. The What, what I think is a much better model of organized labor is in one respect to go much kind of smaller and more local and, and in another respect to go much broader. And, and what I mean by that is we should want to have what's a system similar to what's called works councils in which firms can actually set up essentially worker committees and create a way within local establishments for workers to act collectively and, and have a voice. 
And, you know, that's, that's unfortunately actually barred under federal law today as what's called a company union. You, you can't do that even if you want to, uh, outside the confines of a formal union. But, but I think we should want that. And, and that's what workers say they want. If you, if you survey workers and, and Richard Freeman, a professor at, at Harvard did fantastic work on this. And it's from the nineties, but I, I suspect it, it describes the situation today. If you ask workers whether they would prefer a situation where they have representation that is supported by management but has no power or is adversarial to management but has power, they actually choose collaborative with management and no power by almost three to one. That is a system that makes more sense in everybody's mind uh, at the local level. And then when it comes to the kind of brass tacks bargaining about terms and conditions and so forth, I, I think we actually want broader negotiations. We want something more like what's called sectoral bargaining, where you say, you know, okay, janitors of New York City are going to bargain with hirers of janitors in New York City, and and they're going to set basic terms and conditions uh, for employment that everyone can be comfortable with, and that each individual employer doesn't have to worry if they give up anything they're going to lose to their competitors because they are all in the same boat. Uh, and and you would take as a way of being successful, you take screw your employees off the table. <laughs> now everyone is going to treat their employees in the same way. And the way you become successful is to find other ways to outcompete each other. How about a $15 minimum wage? $15 minimum wage, I think, is a real problem nationwide because it doesn't make sense in, in the context of very different local labor markets. I mean, until recently... Economists across the political spectrum, there, there's a great EPI study on this, kind of took for granted that something like, uh, you know, minimum wage should be 50% of the median wage was a sensible principle. So if you're in a labor market, let's say New York City, where, where you have a very high wage structure, uh, you can support a quite high minimum wage because that is in the context of the full spectrum of wages being paid, and it is it is affecting a, a fairly small segment of the population. If you try to impose a $15 minimum wage in a part of the country where uh, there are parts of the country where the median wage is not yet $15 an hour, that I think is is potentially catastrophic. And, and so what I would like, I actually think the model we have where localities set minimum wages, um, is, is a preferable one. I, I think the federal one could be raised a little bit. It, it, you know, it has not kept pace with, um, even median wage growth, but the, the national median wage is, is between 18 and 19. So I think you could comfortably take the, the federal minimum wage up above 725 toward eight or nine. But if you go much above that, you're, you're running into labor markets where the median might be 14. And then if you're in New York City and, and the median is closer to 30, then, then I think a $15 minimum wage is a, a much more reasonable thing to consider. One of the components of the working hypothesis is that you have to be able to find a job for that job to pay you enough. So what do you think about a federal job guarantee? So the, the federal job guarantee, I, I greatly dislike because I don't think the federal government is any good at creating those kinds of jobs. And and I don't mean that as a kind of small government, federal, you know, government can't create jobs point of view. I mean it in the sense that the kinds of jobs that you would need to create and use to support a federal job guarantee don't actually exist. They, they would have to be jobs of which you need 
millions, if not tens of millions, at one point in the business cycle, but then conversely could could shrink down to almost nothing at, at other points in the business cycle. Uh, I, I think what you want to do, and, and this is essentially what a wage subsidy does, is provide the necessary incentive to the private sector to maintain full employment and preferably at relatively good wages. And so I think both monetary policy and a wage subsidy are the way to make sure there are jobs available in the private sector, uh, which is much more preferable to just asking the federal government to, to try and think of something for everybody to do. Tell me about your monetary policy thinking. How would your ideal monetary policy differ from what we have? My monetary policy thinking is is woefully unformed. If I if I had to pick an area of economic policy that I I just I don't know even in college couldn't make much sense of it would be monetary policy. So I I say less. What, what of, do you mean the the money printer just goes burr? It's easy. <laughs> I did read that somewhere. Yeah. The <laughs> so I you know I I tend to say less about monetary policy than I think I probably should given how important it could be. The the thing I am quite confident of and and was just alluding to is that the way that the Fed has operated um, with, you know, this kind of purported 2% inflation target that we never really seem to hit, I think has been much too hawkish. I think at the margin, we need to have looser monetary policy. We need to place relatively more value on the value of full employment and I guess put put more weight on the value of full employment and if and when we actually start to get inflation and you see it creeping up to 3% or 4%, then let's, let's, let's stop and talk about it then. But, but as far as I can tell, we have been focused way too much on inflation at the expense of full employment in recent decades. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Something that you've been pushing and has been, I think, sort of the locus of some of your fighting with others in the conservative movement is around industrial policy, pro-manufacturing policy, sort of intervening in the market on the front end so that it creates more of the firms and kinds of competition we want. So can you tell me a bit about your your thinking there? Like what what kind of industrial policy would you like to see America have? I think at the the conceptual level, the important thing to recognize is is that there are something markets some things markets are very good at and and some things markets don't do. And if we are concerned about sort of particular industries, particular type of economic activity that we think are going to be valuable to the development of the national economy over time, that's not something private investors are going to think about when they allocate their capital. And so if we care about it, we are going to have to use public policy to advance it. 
And I think we should care about it. I think, you know, the the industrial economy, by which I mean broadly uh, manufacturing, resource extraction, transportation infrastructure, thing, things in the physical world are incredibly important to the health of the overall economy and its trajectory in the long run. And they also happen to be incredibly important as a form of employment because they tend to be the place where especially less educated, especially male workers uh, are most productive. And so those those kinds of jobs actually, I, I think, have particular social value. And so if that's the case, we need to, to design public policies that are going to encourage investment in those areas. And then the, the layer that gets put on top of that is that we are now in a global economy where other countries are doing this. Uh, and of course, the quintessential example is China, which has a very aggressive policy to try to attract this kind of economic activity to its economy. And if we don't want it to all go there, then we are going to have to, to respond. It's, it's sort of a, a funny situation where you would think free markets and free trade are, are synonymous. But in fact, if, if we're going to have free trade, and we, we could discuss how much of that we should really have, to the extent you're going to have free trade, you're going to have to get involved in the market. Uh, when when your trading partners are getting involved in their markets. So there, there are lots of ways to go about this. We actually, we at American Compass just put out this big symposium called Moving the Chains, focused on supply chains, where we brought together experts from all different fields all across the political spectrum to just talk about how many different ways there are to think about this and, and rethink economic policy if this is your goal. And so how we fund research and development and actually have corporations collaborate with each other and collaborate with government in core areas of research, I think is important. Um, I think our tax code should probably focus or be a lot friendlier to this kind of activity rather than finance and and, uh, app creation. I think in some cases we need domestic sourcing requirements. We can just say, we're not going to interfere in the market, but we're going to tell you, you got to buy it somewhere in this domestic market. Different ways we think about education, different ways we think about regulation, different ways we think about antitrust. It all comes together, I think, in where if you said instead of just economic piety, this is something we care about, we would do policy differently. Your idea for a wage subsidy program has come up a couple of times. So, so lay that out for me. What do you, what do you support in terms of a wage subsidy? So the, the basic idea of a wage subsidy, I, I think the easiest way to think of it is as a payroll tax in reverse. So uh, payroll taxes are, are taken out of basically everybody's paycheck from their first dollar. And we could just as easily do the reverse. We could say, based on how much you are earning, uh, we are going to put extra money into your paycheck. And the the basic structure that that I think makes most sense is you focus just on the hourly wage. So we're not worried about how many jobs you have, how much money your household earns. Let's just talk about you in this job. If you are earning, and I've typically used for illustrative purposes, if you're earning less than $15 an hour, uh, we are going to put money in the paycheck to make up half the difference between your market wage and 15 So uh, a $9 an hour job becomes a $12 an hour job. And the employer can advertise it as a $12 an hour job. Uh, it's not something you have to file for in your taxes at the end of the year. It's right in the paycheck. And you can imagine opening up the paycheck and instead of seeing how much FICA took out of your paycheck, you see work credit and, and how much got put in for that pay period. And I think that would you know have two really valuable effects. One, obviously, is it would get 
more money uh, to lower income households where where people are, are working. But I think it also, and, and maybe even more importantly, would would have an effect on on the supply dimension. It would or the or the quantity dimension. It would make it more attractive to take that kind of job. And and if you were an employer, it would make it more attractive to offer that kind of job and and build businesses that were actually going to uh, to employ those kinds of workers. Something you don't focus on, which is a break from contemporary right-wing discourse, is taxes and tax cuts. And, and I've actually seen you write that tax policy has gradually colonized the entire right-of-center domestic portfolio and argued that there should be a no-new tax policy pledge. Can you tell me a bit about why, where you think the Republican Party has gone awry in focusing on tax policy and why you would do it differently? Well, there are two elements to that. One is, I, I think the Republican Party has gone awry in focusing on tax cuts and believing that that marginal tax rates and, and reduction in tax rates or, or other tax reform is is the either only or most important thing uh, we can be doing to try to generate better economic outcomes. So, uh, I, I think the kind of supply side, cut the top marginal tax rate and and watch the economy boom. Uh, mentality is uh, is is not a good one, but but more broadly than that, and, and I think this is what you're alluding to. I think just the the obsession on taxes as an area of policy has gone too far. You know, on, on the right of center, but but even frankly, to some degree, on the left of center, at this point, policies get get cast as tax policy. If you, you go back and you look at Obama's economic policy. Um, program that he he proposed during the 2012 election and it's tax policy after tax policy after tax policy they're different tax policies um, but but the idea is still somehow that it is the tax code that is driving behavior in the economy and it's where we should focus if we want different behavior and I think that's just the the wrong way of of thinking about things I, I think tax policy matters it's not irrelevant. But it's it's not the primary driver of the decisions individuals are making. It's not the primary driver of the decisions firms are making, especially at the level we're talking about it. You know, when when the marginal tax rate was seventy five or ninety percent, and you're talking about bringing it down to thirty percent, like well now now you now now you've pointed out that maybe uh, this is going to make a difference. But but when we're haggling about two three points here or there, a credit for this, a a, a subsidy for that, a surcharge for this. I think it ultimately distracts from what we should be thinking about, which is, as we were just discussing in the industrial policy side of things, the the bigger structural questions of kind of what counts in our economy, what we value, what role government is going to play in, in encouraging some behaviors or discouraging others, uh, and then particularly what investments we're going to be making in the kind of antecedents to, is it antecedents or antecedents? I don't know. Your listeners I would think know. Antecedents. All right. Well, I, I like That's what antecedents. I always say. All right. Well, then, if we say antecedents um, to the kind of economic activity that we want, getting our education system right for the majority of folks who don't earn a, even a community college degree, th- there's no way that's not an order of magnitude more important than the next tax fight that's going to soak up all the time in the next Congress. One thing I've seen you write about is how the central fight on the right now is about whether. After Trump, the Republican Party reverts to a pre-Trump or post-Trump state. And as you sort of come to a close here, I'd like to, to hear you like describe that fight the way you see it. What does it mean for the Republican Party to, if Trump loses in 
November or if he just uh, wins a second term and, and leaves after that to go to a pre-Trump state versus a post-Trump state? Well, I think there's a, a fascinating dynamic on the right of center right now where if you look within institutions, if you look at individuals working in the various think tanks, in media, in, in agencies, in congressional offices, there's just there's a ton of fascinating people doing fascinating work rethinking first principles uh, or, or rethinking how to apply first principles to, to contemporary situations, challenging orthodoxies. And it's really exciting. And, and some of that was going on before Trump. Some of it is inspired by Trump. And some of it is just a result of Trump sort of wiping the table clean and, and there being a sense that, that anything goes, potentially. Uh, and yet, if you zoom out and look at the institutions, you see virtually none of that. You, you see um, a fairly monolithic approach that basically says, well, you know, if we if we keep our heads down, this too shall pass. And essentially, there's no reason the 2024 nominee can't, you know, and, and primary can't be a replay of what 2016 would have been if, if there had been no Trump. And and that dynamic, I think, is a real problem, um, but, but also in a sense very understandable. I mean, when you think at the level of institutions, and, and particularly in the, the ideas world, Institutions are constructed around a set of ideas, um, you know, from the from the donors or subscribers through to the the senior staff, to the producers, to the the to the the folks on the hill and, and that they have relationships with. All of that is oriented around a set of ideas, just like a, a firm is oriented around a, a particular set of products. And so, to say, hey, maybe we should use a different set of ideas instead, even if they're great ideas it's almost impossible to make that shift, um, much as you almost never see a firm say, well, gosh, that other product, we should go be successful with those other products instead. You, you instead need a process of creative destruction where different firms come onto the scene. And so I think that fight is playing out where you see a lot of institutions and certainly important folks within those institutions who establish their own way of thinking and reputation and, and genuinely believe that that what the Republican Party represented and what conservatism represented, you know, from 2000 to 2015, that, that 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 was the right place to be and we just need to get back to that. And then you have a lot of people who are saying, no, that's not right. As, as a conceptual matter, a lot of these ideas were either were, were just wrong or they were outdated and not applicable to current circumstances. Uh, and on top of that, there's a this a political problem that the kind of coalition that those ideas were built for does not seem to have any potential as a majority coalition. So we need to do better than that, and and this is the time to be to be doing it. And and so of course once once you accept that broad frame that that we should be thinking about post-Trumpism, not just a, a return to pre-Trumpism, then there are still any number of fights to have about the specifics. But the the premise of forming American Compass was to say at the institutional level, uh, we need to start building some things that can be homes for post-Trumpism. Frankly, you know, the creative destruction metaphor has its limit. My hope is that. Many of the great right-of-center institutions continue to thrive, and, and with our work from the outside, we can kind of nudge them and, and as I was describing, alter the, the stream that everybody's swimming in. Uh, but, but that that change has to happen um, somewhat politically, but from my perspective anyway, mostly for, for the substantive reasons that, that what the pre-Trump conservative 
and, and I put scare quotes around conservative platform and, and way of thinking looked like was not the right one and, and needs to change. I think it's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? All right, here we go. I, I will recommend uh, The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom, which is, I guess, more than 40 years old now and yet could not be more applicable to current social and cultural fights that we're having. Uh, I would recommend uh, Mariana Mazzucato's The Value of Everything, uh, which came out a couple years ago and, and is a really fascinating discussion of a lot of what we just were talking about here uh, how do we think about value? Is it true that what's valuable in the economy is merely what price it fetches, or or are there other ways to think about it? And in fact, did many of the great economists historically think about it very differently? Uh, and then I'll recommend a novel, not because I, I want to appear like a sophisticated novel reader, but to the contrary, because I hate novels and never read them. But someone convinced me to read Anna Karenina, and it was actually good. I would give it a solid B+. And so if you're someone who thinks they don't like literature, uh, but would like to stretch their brain in that way, Anna Karenina would be a place to start. Oren Cass, thank you very much. My pleasure. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Oren Cass, for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Clanches Vox Media podcast production. 